Father who sent your Son into this world and you have given us your word. Give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us through Christ and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Be seated. I want to speak to you today based on our reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It might be helpful if you turn back to that passage, page 9 in your bulletin. And I really want to just take the middle section of, of this passage, verses 9, 10, and 11, and just talk about why Paul is saying that to him, the greatest treasure is to know Christ. That to know Christ has surpassing value, surpassing everything else. You know, there are, there are people, many people who go through life thinking, if I can just get this one thing, whatever that one thing might be, if I can just have this, when I finally get it, I'll be fulfilled. I'll have peace. I'll know that I finally arrived. And often what happens is people get that one thing and they, they still feel emptiness. They feel, still feel dissatisfied. A couple years ago, there was a billionaire who made some headlines when he tweeted, this is 2015, this is the guy who was behind Minecraft, the video game that my kids are still crazy about. And uh, he's made billions of dollars off of Minecraft. And uh, he was rather young when he came into this money. And he said this, he said, um, he tweeted this, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons for, for trying. And then he said this, he said, I'm hanging, this is just a couple minutes later, I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends. I'm at a party with famous people. I'm able to do whatever I want and I've never felt so isolated. So I want I want to remind us in this very simple sermon of what we have. When we have Christ. What we have when we know Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure, four things that I see here in this passage. One is verse nine. When we are in Christ, when we know him. We have a righteousness from God. We are right in the eyes of God. You see that? He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We have the righteousness from God that depends on our. It's related to our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can know that we are right with God. Now, to be righteous, the very simple definition of righteousness is this. It is, it is um, always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing in the eyes of God. Always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing. And the Bible teaches us that God is a righteous judge and that we all have to give an account of our life before him. And I think if you, if you think about that, None of us could say, if we're honest with ourselves, that we live up to this perfect standard. Who among us can say, I've always done the right thing in the eyes of God and I've never done the wrong thing. But this sense that we fall short of a righteous standard starts very early in our life. I mean, I see it with my little kids. 
Sam is two years old and he's getting at the age where he knows right from wrong. He knows what we want him to do and what we don't want him to do. And when we walk into the room and he's got a crown in his hand and he's marking on the walls, he's getting at that point where he turns around and he tries to hide from us. He knows it's the wrong thing to do. One of my girls, when she was little, when we would catch her doing something wrong, she would say, don't look at me, daddy. Don't look at me, mommy. Because there is this there is this moral law within us that God has placed in our conscience. And then God has filled this out even more. He's revealed his righteous standard in a more clear way in the scriptures. And if we are honest with ourselves, we realize we can't and we haven't lived up to this perfect righteous standard. So we need a righteousness that's not based on what we have done. (laughs) but what God has done for us. And that's what Paul says that he's found in Christ. Now, he does say earlier, he says in verse six, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous for his traditions as a Pharisee. And then he says this as to righteousness under the law, under the law, he was blameless. And I think by that, what he means is the righteousness that he understood before he met Christ had to do with his traditions as a Pharisee, and he was very devout to these traditions. Things like keeping kosher, keeping the kosher food laws, things like honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, and all the laws related to honoring the Sabbath, and other rules and regulations that had developed over time in this tradition that he was a part of and that he was at the top of the heap. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. One New Testament scholar, Wes Hill, put it this way. Paul had attained, listen to this, the greatest moral and cultural capital of any Jewish person he knew. He was at the top of the religious game. But now he says, I consider that nothing, rubbish, compared to knowing Christ. Because now he has a righteousness that's not based on his self-effort, but a righteousness from God based on what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. So there is great freedom and there's great peace in knowing this, that I am right in the eyes of God because of what God has done for me. And I come with the empty hands of faith to receive what he's done for me. So that's one of the great treasures that's related to the greatest treasure of knowing Christ. We get righteousness from God, not self-righteousness, but God's righteousness. And we also get what Paul says here, the, the power of the resurrection. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. Now, at this point, Paul's not talking so much about what happens after we die. Resurrection power for Paul is about that, it includes that, but it's more than that. And he's going to talk about that at the end of this section. But when he's talking about resurrection power, he's talking about somebody who is united to Christ. And because we're united to Christ in faith and Christ is alive, he is the living Christ. There is power available to us to walk in a new way of life. Newness of life. That's what he's talking about here. 
in Romans chapter six. That's exactly how he puts it. He says, because Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have new life because of the resurrection of Jesus, if we're united to him. And what does that mean? Well, that means things like healing for people who are hurting. That means things like hope for people who are hopeless. That means things like meaning for people who are in despair about the meaning of life. Freedom for people who are addicted. Deliverance for those who are in bondage to sin and shame. This is the new life that is available to us through a relationship with the living Christ. Newness of life. I came across a testimony by a a novelist named Andrew Clavin, who's written several novels and won awards for his writing. And he described himself as being a secular and agnostic. And he said this, he says this in this piece, I was a worldling who loved violent movies, politics, sex, and a good single malt scotch. One day, Clavin is writing this novel about a character who he had pray every day before he went to bed. And Clavin thought, well, maybe I can try it. If one of my novel, one of my characters in a novel can pray every day, then maybe I'll give that a shot. And so he did. He started praying every day. And God began to break into his life, newness of life. He, he said, I began to see people differently. My wife and other people, I began to look at them differently. He said, I began to look at the world differently. This is what he wrote. He said, there was a steady sense of vitality and beauty that endured even in periods of sorrow and pain. And he began to call God my joy of joys, my greatest treasure. And, and, and then he said, as he's interacting with God this way in prayer, and he's still not sure exactly who God is, he hears God say to him, you must be baptized. And so he went into the church, this formerly secular agnostic person from a Jewish background, by the way, and was baptized in the church. And then he said this, he said, as soon as I rose from the baptismal font, I knew I had stepped through an invisible barrier between myself and a remarkable new journey. This is what the living God does time and time again in people's life. Brings newness. It's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here today in a point in your life and you're asking questions and there's some despair and meaningless in your life. I want to say the same God who met Andrew Clavin is here to meet you today. He is the living Christ. So we have this resurrection power from God. We have this righteousness from God. But then we get to something that maybe we're not so excited about. And that is what Paul says in the end of verse 10, that I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That's the part that I would like to skip. I'm okay with the resurrection and the power. But the suffering part is hard. The suffering part is hard. But we can't skip it. To get to resurrection, you have to go through the cross. The question is not, 
of course, how or when necessarily will I suffer? Let me back up. The question is not, will I suffer? The question is, how? How will I go through it? How will I face it? And Paul is saying that when you're united to Christ, you can share in his suffering. In some way, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ and becoming like him in death. That's a curious phrase, becoming like him in death. What does he mean by that? Well, I I was thinking about that and thinking about how did Christ go through his death? How did Christ go through his suffering? And think about a couple of scenes in the Gospels, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is facing suffering. Tremendous suffering. And he says to the father, take this cup from me, a cup representing the suffering that he's got to take in. Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. As he was facing this suffering, Christ is entrusting himself to the will of his father. He doesn't want to go through it. He doesn't want to face it, but he trusts in the goodness of his father. And so he takes a step and he follows. And then think about Jesus even on the cross with his final breath. Into your hands, Father, I what? Commend my spirit. So he's entrusting his spirit to God, to his father. And I think that's what Paul is saying, in a sense, that when we are united to Christ, when we know Christ, when we have a relationship with him, we can go through suffering and we can go through death. Because the Spirit of Christ is in us with this sense of trusting the will of the Father even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we don't want to face it. We can say, I'm entrusting myself to you. You're a good Father. And so I can go through this suffering and I can even face the end of my life commending myself. To me, that's invaluable. To have that kind of relationship with God to have that kind of relationship with Christ. To trust the Lord through the suffering. There's a lot of people who look upon suffering as completely meaningless and they don't know how to wrestle with it. But as Christians, we have this resource that we can go through it knowing that we serve a loving and good God. We may not understand, but we entrust ourselves to Him. That's the Spirit of Christ in us. And it's a great value, a great benefit. Paul ends this section by writing about the resurrection of the dead. Yes, we go through suffering. We go through death, but that's not the final word. Praise God. There's a resurrection of the dead. So he says, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ is to have this hope of resurrection from the dead. And Paul's basic idea when it comes to the resurrection of the saints, of believers in Christ, is this. That because Christ was raised from the dead, those who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. And the image that Paul often uses is of the first fruits of a harvest. Christ is the first fruits of a harvest that is to come. That is, those who are raised from the dead. And those who are in Christ are part of the harvest that's to come later at the end of the age. And so if you're united with Christ in a relationship with him, connected to him by faith, the promise is God to raise you from the dead. And the reason that God will do this to those who know him 
and love him is because of his love. That God's love is eternal and nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, not even death itself. That's Romans 8, Romans 8, 39, I believe it is. So this is a love that is stronger than even death. How God will perform that great miracle, the resurrection of the saints at the end of the age. I don't pretend to know exactly how it's a great mystery. But um, maybe it's helpful to remember what biology teaches us. Biology teaches us that our physical identity is essentially a matter of information. And this information is in our DNA. And the cells in our bodies contain the DNA. And so if you can extract the DNA, the genetic code from the DNA, you can replicate a body. That's the basis of of cloning. Well, it's not difficult for me to think that if we can do that with our finite understanding of how everything works, it's not difficult for me to believe that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the creator of all things, he's got the data. He's got the information. He's got it stored. And he can literally reassemble any body. He's promised that he's going to do this through his son, Jesus Christ. That one day, those who love him will be resurrected to eternal life. He's promised that through his son. What a comfort to know that. What a comfort to know that there is a love that's greater than death. So this is what we have when we have Christ. We have righteousness from God. We have newness of life. The power of the resurrection. We have meaning facing suffering and death. And we have the hope of resurrection. Friends, there's nothing in the world that can compare to this. This is of surpassing value. There's nothing that the world can offer that compares to these promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know you more. When Paul talks about knowing, he's not talking about just what's happening in our brains, in our minds, but a a relationship of trust and of love. And so help us to grow, each of us, in this relationship. Strengthen us in the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, as as I mentioned earlier, you are the great vineyard owner who sent your only son into this world to suffer and to die for our sake. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have this kind of relationship that Paul is talking about with you, Lord Christ, that they would turn to you and consider all that you offer and all that you are. We thank you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.